Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico-legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the Part 2 anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr Kate Steele and I'm Dr Kate McCrossan and today's episode is How Do I Breathe Part 4 where we'll discuss airway scenarios with special guest Dr Nadia Vargas. As always, in this podcast we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Okie dokie. So moving on to scenario number six. You are called to intensive care to assist with a 54-year-old female patient who had a percutaneous tracheostomy placed earlier that day. The patient is hypoxic with oxygen saturations of 82%. Now, Nadia, what's your approach to a case like this? Well, it's a bit of a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, fresh trackies gone wrong. Oh, are like, ah. Yeah. And then in ICU. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're not exactly in a place mm. of well reasonable place of safety it could be worse you could be on the ward yes yes but it's obviously an emergency so you'd have to tend to the patient while again trying to get some more information and hopefully your ICU colleagues who have called you would be happy to give you a bit more background on the patient if the oxygen saturation stay where they are you obviously also want to inform the ENT team because they'd be best to deal with whatever happened to that trackie. And I doubt that she's necessarily going to have another perk trackie Mm. again, because the risk of creating a false tract Mm. in a trackie that's so new is really high. Mm. So if you have to stay in ICU, you'd probably, again, call your anaesthetic assistant to come with some bare minimums, like the difficult airway trolley. Mm. I'm sure you could use some equipment from ICU, but... uh, Unfortunately, while it should be the same across ED, ICU, anaesthetics, it's always a bit of an issue with compatibility Mm, and that doesn't just extend to our monitors, but they use different things or they call Mm, them different things. That's so true. And so it's better if you're already in an unfamiliar environment to have at least some basic things that you know where they are and how they work together. Mm. And I guess the most important thing for a tracheostomy gone wrong is always to remember that there's a patient upper airway or yes. there was, yes, and that you can oxygenate from above. Mm. That, yes. That's the first thing. So you always need to apply oxygen to both sides. And in a trachea that is that fresh, I would probably, I would concentrate on the airway from above. There's often in the history, they tend to not be necessarily difficult airways yeah. if they go and do percutaneous trachea. Yeah, so that's been in ICU for like 10 days and it's yeah. fine. Yeah. Yeah. So that should yeah. be a fairly good indicator that it's probably manageable to get in a normal oral airway. Yeah. And then sometimes they wake them up quite quickly. So if that patient is hypoxic, but potentially still awake, you also need to get some medication ready because yeah. you're going to have to deal with this and it's unlikely to you, that you're going to be able to deal with this while she's awake. Yeah. So you're not going to be able to manipulate much on the trachea. 
and you're not going to be able to intubate her from above. Mm. So you're going to have to think about sedation, paralysis, yeah. optimize your condition. Ideally, you'd probably see these sets coming up if yeah. you give her bag mass ventilation mm. or oxygen from above and then put her to sleep and do an oral airway with a video laryngoscope, having your difficult airway trolley there. And then if you run into unexpected difficulties, you could get your ICU colleague or another anesthetic colleague to do the two-hand technique. So yeah. one of you does the video laryngoscope and the other one drives a fiber optic with the tube. Yeah. And um, so particularly really tricky airways mm. are normally quite doable with that. And so hopefully that will be good enough for this patient as well. Mm. And then once the airway is secured, you can think about what happened to the perk tracking. Mm. Because it's the same day, so it's incredibly fresh, it probably will have just collapsed. Yeah. If you just dilate them, they tend to just collapse. It might be a bit different with a surgical tracking because they tend to epithelialize the different layers and so mm. it tends to stay open a bit better. But at the same time, even a surgical tracking in the first seven days you'd probably just want ENT to have an exploration, have a look. Because there's nothing worse than creating a false tract mm. and then starting to ventilate through oh that yeah. and potentially create <laughs> subcut emphysema. Because mm. once you have subcut emphysema, Mm. Uh, you might create tension pneumophoroses mm. or more swelling, crepitations, mm. your neck might swell as well. So it will almost then be impossible to get an upper airway, mm. even in someone who was previously well with that. Mm. Yeah, so I, th I think that's a, a really valuable lesson is don't focus too much on like what's gone wrong with this tracky. But, you know, if there's SATs ready too, it's, it's like any other airway emergency. And so just focus on oxygenating the patient and then worry about what went wrong later and just two things to emphasize obviously tracheostoma very different from laryngostoma mm. where you don't have a patent upper airway the whole laryngeal inlet is gone and the trachea is anteriorized and mm. has a stoma mm. and, it, and those are very secure airways really within the first day or so mm. so those are probably the only ones and again ideally you get ENT to deal with whatever the problem is. Mm. But the biggest problem with those would be that you might cause bleeding. So yeah. just make sure you mm. use a small tube. And no one should be in hospital with a tracheostomy or laryngostoma without having these reminders yeah. as to what, what it is, particularly with tracheas, there's lots of different ways of incision as well. Mm. And then the, the emergency algorithm next to it, which is all pretty much... You're going to have to have a look at it, but the big difference for the tracheostomy is obviously you can put oxygen up um, the to top. the upper airway. Mm. But in both, you would obviously have a look, listen and feel, mm. potentially try and pass a section catheter if it's mm. a more mature trachea. So the reason I said no to this one and this one is because they're incredibly fresh and it's yeah. a perk trachea. But if you have one that's a bit more established or if you have a laryngostoma, you obviously just want to make sure there's nothing blocking it so you can pass a section catheter down. It's not bleeding from it and check whether the patient's still breathing by themselves and if mm. not, whether you can ventilate for them through that stoma and then don't hesitate again. Mm. Uh, the disposable fibre optics are so great because yeah. they can just be put anywhere and connected to a screen. Yeah. Have a look down there. I, I once had someone with a fresh trachea in ICU that had high airway pressures mm. and we were very suspicious that it was either bleed or some problem with the trachea. turns out the trachea was perfectly fine and he wasn't bleeding. He just had bronchospasm from his oh, really wow. severe COPD. But once we'd worked through the algorithm, yeah. 
yeah. <laughs> we established that it was that and could yeah. train it effectively and his airway pressures went down. Yeah. So that would be one of the things to watch out for. The other one is there's Charlie tracheostomies where mm. they have an inner cannula. The inner mm. cannula can obstruct. Mm. But then if you have to ventilate them, you have to put the inner cannula back in because okay. otherwise you can't connect the circuit. Mm. And that can be a real pitfall. Mm. And the last bit is... We once had an airway emergency where someone was day seven past a free flap to replace, again, part of his tongue. Mm. And he'd just been decannulated the day before. And then he started having a torrential bleed um, out of the flap side. So he was bleeding into Mm. his airway. And... I was all prepared to sacrifice the blood, Mm. uh, the flap. I was all prepared to sacrifice the flap Mm. and just go – because he previously prior to the surgery had been great free airway. So I thought, oh, but with a video laryngoscopy, I'd still probably be able. Mm. And obviously the blood, so you need extra light sources. Mm. You need to prepare for two suckers and all these things. But the MaxFax team were adamant that um, no one was to touch the flap and the mm. flap was going to survive and the flap Even had the really patient didn't. chance oh, of gosh. surviving. Oh, and so goodness. they just wanted to recannulate the old trachea side. And okay. even though it was a surgical trachea, the, the blood had obviously trickled down. So there was a yeah. lot of blood coming in when they tried to manipulate that. We were supporting the poor patient with just a bit of ketamine because there was mm. really not much else to yeah. give and, and oxygen. And generally... Uh, great sense of discomfort yeah yeah absolutely Um, it also took despite what they the team thought was going to happen as in decannulated yesterday is going to be very straightforward it wasn't so he had passes of the putting a new trackie in five times oh gosh and each time he didn't believe us when we said there's no CO2 you need to do it again it's not in the right spot so there was some form of false tract and um but because we kept him awake he was spawn breathing and at least we never made it worse and we never caused subcut emphysema to the path Mm. and then in the end we got it and I think everyone was just really stressed (laughs) about the whole thing in the end we got it and he went to sleep and it was fine but yeah that was that was very interesting because he kept saying I can see it I can see trachea rings and we're Mm. like but we, we see him breathing, but it's not reflected CO2 in the CO2 yeah. trays. It's yeah. not, it's yeah. not in the right spot. Yeah. And Far out. Mm. Uh, so we'll move on to scenario number seven. A 58-year-old female presents for a pan endoscopy after presenting with a hoarse voice. A suspicious-looking nodule was seen on a fibre-optic nasal endoscopy in the ENT clinic. What is your approach to pan endoscopy? So this is another grade bread-and-butter SAQ, essentially. Yeah. And they're going to expect you to cover a lot of details in a short period of time because it's such an everyday procedure. Mm. And the best way to think about that for an SAQ would be, again, surgical, anaesthetic and patient yeah. factors. Yeah. And so in a, in a surgery, what do they do that during the panendoscopy? So they normally just do the laryngoscopy with a suspension laryngoscope Mm. inserted but technically it would also involve a bronchoscopy at Mm. least of the upper part Mm. an oesophagoscopy and a direct inspection palpation of the nasopharynx and the base of the tongue Mm. and there's a million ways to oxygenate during this (laughs) positioning is another surgical factor to think of because they often want them in these hyperextended positions and having a shoulder roll and a head ring and particularly the horseshoe head rings can mm. cause pressure areas quite mm. quickly. 
maybe not for panendoscopy, but for like a two-hour procedure or something, yeah. you'd probably worry about that. And the hyperextension, particularly in frail people, can yeah. give them problems with their C-spine mm. or flow in the vertebral arteries. People have stroked out from this before. Mm. So there's always something to think about and never have their head hanging. Yeah. So even if they want them hyperextended, you need to then push up the head yeah. end of the yeah. bed to at least secure that for the patient. And anesthetic-wise... A million things. So <laughs> easiest, just a microlaryngoscopy tube. Yeah. We touched on that before. So they're the kind of pediatric size tubes, but they're adult length. Yes. And um, so they lend themselves to this procedure because they're going to be very small and out of the surgeon's way as much as possible. Why are you still going to be able to ventilate? You will, however, have to often increase the expiration time because they yeah. uh, need a bit more time of that small lumen to exhale all of, of it. Mm. And you probably have to ignore your airway pressures a little bit, particularly <laughs> in the bigger yeah. patients. Definitely. Because they will alarm. The other option is to spont breathe them, which again, mm. if they want to get biopsies around the vocal cords posteriorly and so on, often yeah. the tube would still be in their way. Mm. And there you do the spont breathing technique, as we've discussed before. And because it, it lends itself quite well, because it's a relatively short procedure. And so they're not going to be spont breathing for like two and a half hours. Mm. It's normally 30 yeah. minutes or so. Yeah. And so at the end, you can just stuff an LMA in and mm. then send them out to recovery mm. that way uh, you'll find that despite what they try to tell you high flow nasoprongs don't always clear co2 or very rarely yeah so they always have a, a raised entire co2 yeah. and till they start breathing a bit better with the lma and then mm. they normally clear it and you normally would do again tiva for maintenance because it's just the easiest particularly even when they're happy with a tube they sometimes have to remove that tube <laughs> and in between and so you'd have unreliable depth of anesthesia and they'd breathe a whole lot of superfluorine mm. in that case mm. and another thing to think about is your extubation plan because they normally take lots of biopsies which can bleed and swell mm. and sometimes they do these for quite bulky tumors that they also try to debulk at mm. the same time so again risk of bleeding mm. And how you want to extubate them, where you want to extubate them, where you want to send them afterwards. And if they've done a lot of things to the airway, it pays to have them humidified in recovery just yeah. to help them with the discomfort and the secretions. Yeah. And then patient factors, I think that's not going to be a surprise to anyone. Yeah. <laughs> they're often smokers, drinkers, yeah. advanced age. They often, yeah. even if they're younger fall into the frail category so they yeah. can often be malnourished as well mm. and they have lots of mm. comorbidities mm. yeah yes yeah, so it sounds like it can be like as straightforward as you know fentanyl propofol whatever your muscle relaxant is of choice you know rock or if you want to do something short acting mmlt happy days couple of small biopsies but it could be much more complex than that spontaneous breathing bleeding afterwards you know mm. difficult patients so yeah it's a procedure that has a wide potential degree of difficulty i suppose we could say yeah mm. yeah but well bulky tumors would be one of the other scenarios where you could argue it might be worthwhile doing a spont breathing because yeah. they probably mm. wouldn't they would very likely get cork in a bottle yeah and not tolerate an awake procedure but they might also completely become in, impossible to back mass ventilate or yeah. um, put an airway down yeah. if you were to normally induce them. So that would be a good case to think about spont breathing as a kind of backup just mm. to see once you go in there what you can find. Sure, yeah. mm. Another option with 
when we talk about awake fiber optics is also that when you tropicalize them really well, but as we've discussed with the goiter, you can't quite navigate yeah. that bend. If they're tropicalized already, take a video laryngoscope so you don't have to apply so much pressure, but just yeah. have a quick, gentle yeah. look yeah. and see how it looks. I remember one case where they decided to do an awake fiber optic for a goiter and in the end couldn't do it. And so they decided to do an awake tracheostomy that then they hit a vessel and it started bleeding mm. quite oh a lot. Gosh. So it was a pretty traumatic yeah. three hours for everyone involved. Oh, that sounds awful. And <laughs> In the end, when the patient was asleep, they had a look down there. He was a great two airway oh, with direct yeah. laryngoscopy. Exactly. So. Oh. Never hurts to have a look, does it? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And on that note, let's move on to our last scenario. All good things must come to an end, sadly. You have anaesthetized a 27-year-old male patient for placement of a halo traction brace for a C-spine injury. He wasn't the easiest airway to begin with. A grade 3 Cormac and Lahan view initially with a pogo of 10% on a video laryngoscope, but with excellent positioning and the use of a C-Mac D-blade. You are now tasked with extubating him. So mm-hmm. how, Nadia, how would you approach this extubation? Okay, so I would first check that he fulfills my normal criteria for extubation. Mm. So he has, he's completely reversed, normal temperature, good electrolytes, good <laughs> gas exchange, normal physiology, essentially. Mm. And then I think about what we've done for him and this fairly difficult airway to start with, what mm. has potentially made it worse or better. And I would think about the different columns again Mm. so he's not been prone and unless I've caused a lot of trauma but I'm hoping my first pass was successful so I'm assuming the middle column has kind of stayed the same Mm. but I do know now he's got the halo on his posterior column is definitely Mm. um, Mm. the same as it was before if not worse Mm. and the halo will also impact on his anterior column as well So it's really important to know what kind of halo they put on Mm. and how it's secured. Sometimes you can get a key or like a little key or something. Yeah, it's almost like an Allen key, isn't it? Yeah, like an Allen key from – and the orthopods can take one or two braces away to facilitate access to the patient's Mm. head if you're particularly worried and without necessarily impacting on the therapeutic treatment effect the halo should be having. And just put it back on. But you have to have a chat with the orthopods about that. And then you would have to go for your check. So you – uh, guaranteed that the baseline criterias are fulfilled, your physiological criterias. You then might um, do a cuff leaked check. Mm. So you just deflate the cuff and see if you've got a leak between your inspiratory and expiratory <laughs> tidal volume. Yeah. And you should have a significant leak to kind of indicate there's no swelling down there. Mm. And it only works when you do it on positive pressure ventilation. So if your patient's already spawned breathing, you're unlikely to hear a massive leak because yeah. they're not using such high pressures when mm. they're breathing by themselves. Again, it would be a good idea and no one would fault you if you did another mini FNE, even though you're not an ENT surgeon. So taking the fiber optic to have it. And you don't even have to go through the nose if you're concerned about base of skull or traumatic brain injury on top yeah. of the c-spine you could just try and pass it through the mouth and have a look mm. what the entry side of the tube looks like what the tissue around there looks can sometimes be surprising how much of that can swell yeah even though he doesn't have any risk factors for that 
And then if you do decide that you will give it a go to extubate him, in this case, you probably should have all the equipment and drugs ready for urgent reintubation because yeah. you can't really entirely predict from the mm. tests that you've done that he's going to fail or succeed. Mm. And the easiest way here to leave an option for you to quickly reintubate him if needed is to put a Cook Airway Exchange catheter down. Mm. So they come in very lots of different sizes and lengths, but we normally use the 14 French mm. and the quite long ones. Mm. And with those, the most important thing is actually to measure that you don't put them in too far mm. because yeah. then it makes them cough. Yeah. Like it sits just at the carina and mm. tickles yeah. them, makes them cough, and they really become intolerant. However, there are some people, and unfortunately young, fit, and well men tend to be those that have very prominent gag reflex yes, and are easily yes. upset. So an option is to topicalize a little bit mm. um, that you might have to even repeat in recovery. Mm. And then if he, if you assume it's worth giving it a goal with the extubation, you put the Cook Airway Exchange catheter down and you wake him up, put the cuff down, take the tube out, and then you can tape it to his cheek mm. and make sure it stays at the markings mm. and then just observe how he breathes, whether he tolerates it, don't hesitate to spray again yeah. a little bit if he doesn't. And I'd probably observe him a little bit in theatre as well because it tends to not pay to dump these just in recovery because no. mm. you often then have to come back. And plus it's better you know them, you know the previous history, so you just continue looking after them for a little bit longer yeah. and we'll save you time in the long term than in recovery. And um, if you show signs of either not coping not breathing adequately or being really agitated and delirious then your positioning often is then worse obviously once they yeah. start thrashing around but you would go back to your video laryngoscope and the cook airway exchange catheter mm. and then just railroad the tube in that way and that's potentially very quick there's also a staged extubation set from cook Ooh. where they have a small wire and then a green and purple Cook Airway Exchange catheter that mm. is basically the takes the place of the yellow one. Mm. And the added benefit of that is meant to be that you can leave something even less irritating than yeah. the Cook Airway Exchange catheter, as in you just leave the wire in. Yeah. The wire is, however, very flimsy, so yeah. I'd be a bit concerned that that would go somewhere else yeah, yeah. and potentially dislodge. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I would never send someone with any kind of airway exchange catheter to another place than yeah. recovery, HDU or ICU. So mm. they can't go to the ward. Even like a neuro HDU or something wouldn't yeah. be appropriate because mm. that, that could potentially do more harm in mm. there than, yeah. than benefit unless there's someone airway competent yeah. there to deal with it. And if we're talking about coroner's cases, oh, <laughs> there's no. the one in the UK where they tried to oxygenate for cook airway exchange catheter once while they were dealing with a difficult airway mm -hmm. and it started migrating because it was connected to a really high pressure oxygen mm -hmm. source. Oh, no. And that was actually with an aesthetist, to be fair. So. Oh, <laughs> no. Oh, no. Yeah, no, it's a, great, it's a great technique. I have actually occasionally used that and, yeah, put them in recovery and, and just left them, you know, like 
kind of observed them for half an hour with the Cook Airway Exchange catheter in. It was an older gentleman, the one that stands out, and he tolerated it pretty well. So it's just a good backup plan. And I do find the halos, yeah, once they're on, it's just you think, oh, my God, how would I re-intubate, you know, once I, once it's back, you know, once they're in the halo proper. Mm. But don't hesitate to talk to the orthopods because a lot of, I find in my experience, a lot of that halo stuff is not unnecessary but if you communicate with yeah. them and say what do you really need to keep that c-spine stable yeah. mm. and what is just so the patient doesn't yeah. move his head around which he's not going to because i'm about to anesthetize him so mm. what metal bars can you take away yeah. from me yeah if they come back they to often them. surprise yeah. you and yeah. they can yeah. actually make your life a lot easier yeah mm. yeah that's right when they come back for other procedures i've certainly done that and gotten the um orthotics but they they come and um yeah remove all the front pieces for you mm. beforehand and yeah and, and my other suggestion if the cook air exchange catheter falls out or he becomes delirious later in recovery and you have to reintubate him would it be again tube operator technique yeah. so this is a prime one where you already had only pogo 10 percent with the yeah. hyperangulated blade you're going to need something that's flexible with yeah. a view that can drive the tube for you mm. and for him the main problem also is access so yeah. you're not going to have much more room to improve his view with the video laryngoscope. So you just need something that can yeah. do that for you. Mm. And his mouth opening should be fine. Mm. Yeah. Good advice. So look, Nadia, we really appreciate your time and expertise today. Mm. It's definitely safe to say that both Kate and I have learnt more than just one thing. We've learned multiple things by talking to you and we can only imagine our listeners will find this topic fascinating as well. But before we finish, we have one more thing to cover before we let you go. Nadia, what have you learned in anesthesia this week? All right. So I learned (laughs) that you can give sedation to a person that doesn't really have a blood pressure you could measure, doesn't have a pulse you could feel, not because they're septic or so hypertensive, because they have such severe peripheral vascular disease (laughs) that you can't get carotid curve noises on manual blood pressure measurement. And you can't feel a pulse. And while it's not pleasant or agreeable, it's doable. Oh, wow. (laughs) I have no words. All I can say is well done. (laughs) Look, thanks again, Nadia. It's been so valuable to cover such a core anaesthetic topic and we've finally reached it in this season, which is great. And even over the challenging medium of of podcasts, because I know when you give your fellowship talk, you do have a lot of um, visual aids, but you've done a great job of verbally describing and we will have lots of things in our show notes as well to take a look at. Thanks very much. It's been very enjoyable. Well, that's all we have time for on today's episode of Deep Breaths. Don't forget to claim CPD if you are a provisional fellow or consultant. And if you like what you hear, please rate us on your favourite podcast platform. In fact, Spotify now allows ratings too. And you can always get in touch with us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we hope you can join us again next time on Deep Breaths. Deep Breaths.